Welcome, all of my creepy crime connoisseurs. This is Casket Case, brought to you by the Sisters Three. With me are my two sisters by blood and magic. Hi, I am your oldest and most bougie sister, Chelsea. Hi, I'm Onyx, your youngest and most likely to commit a murder. And I am your storyteller tonight, the one with all of the brains and equal humor, Anna. All right. So I actually have a bit of a treat for our listeners tonight um, because I have two cases for you guys. Kind of a collaboration of like-minded tragedies, if you will. So growing up, um, our dad was really great about our exposure to different musics and things like that. He mostly had us listening to um, like a plethora of his favorite rock bands from like the 80s and 90s. Nirvana being one of my favorite, and the song Polly on their album Nevermind. Um, as a kid, you don't really understand like how heavy it is and the connotations behind it, but my dad always told a story about how that song was based off of a girl who got kidnapped leaving one of Nirvana's shows. And I wanted to look into it and find out, hey, you know what? We're in essentially the business of um, diving into crimes now. So let's, uh, let's see what this one is about. And it turns out that my dad was only partially correct. This song is based off of um, Gerald Arthur Friend. He was a serial rapist and kidnapper from Lakewood, Washington. Um, he was born November 24th, 1937, and he is currently serving two consecutive 75-year terms at Airway Heights Corrections Center. He'd almost be dead by now, right? He's... He was born in 1937. Yeah. Oh, I mean... He's not dead. He's in his 80s. Oh. So his first brush with the law was an abduction that took place in July of 1960 when Gerald was only 22 years old. Um, he picked up a 12-year-old girl and her brother who were hitchhiking, um, but he quickly forced the brother out of the car at gunpoint and then abducted the girl. He drove hmm. to Mount Rainier National Park where he beat her, raped her, and cut her hair. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, the child, because she was a child, um, she actually was eventually able to escape by jumping into the river where passing motorists found her. Um, and friend's father, so, so Gerald's father, found him hiding in a field near their home a few days later. Um, Gerald drew a twenty-two pistol and a struggle ensued, resulting in Gerald being wounded. Um, his father took him to the hospital and turned him into the police. How old was the little girl? She was 12. Oh my yeah. God. He was, wow. he was 22. Good. And after uh, essentially shooting himself, his dad <laughs> turned him into the police. Um, he was convicted of rape and torture and was sentenced to a minimum of 75 years. This man escaped twice from Walla Walla Correctional Facility. Wow. And wow. yet, 
was still somehow able to be paroled in 1980 after only 20 years of his 75-year minimum sentence. Damn. So, yeah. God, I love that justice system. I know. He hadn't even served a quarter of his time and escaped twice, and they still paroled him. Jeez. Yeah. Um, He's a go-getter. <laughs> so, well, uh, let's see. In June of 1987 so just seven years after he was released on parole he abducted a 14 year old girl at knife point when she accepted a ride from him after attending a rock concert so she was leaving a concert it just wasn't nirvana's he repeatedly raped and tortured her while she was suspended from a pulley mechanism hanging from the ceiling of his mobile home um, she oh was God. also able to escape from Gerald by jumping out of the truck at a gas station. Um, he was then apprehended and stopped for a traffic violation. I'm sorry, he was apprehended when he was stopped for a traffic violation. And the deputies recognized him. Um, he was convicted of first degree kidnapping and rape in August of the same year. So just two months later. He was sentenced to finish his first 75-year sentence with an additional 75-year sentence added on for his 1987 crime to be served consecutively. Good. Yeah. So the 14-year-old victim then sued the state and the Department of Corrections for paroling friend in the first place. Um, which, yeah, I mean, Absolutely. Um, Kurt Cobain read about the case in the local in a local Washington newspaper, and it became the inspiration behind Nirvana's song "Polly," released on their album "Nevermind," um, which was written in the perspective of of the abductor, where the victim tricked the kidnapper into thinking she was enjoying what he was doing to her and causing him to let his guard down long enough for her to escape. Oh wow. So, um, the good tactic. Yeah. And like that, that was obviously like beneficial. Um, but the victims of both of Gerald's cases were never named rightfully because they're minors. The first right. one was 12. The second was 14. So in no sources were they ever named. So there seems to be a lot of confusion when it comes to unraveling the story behind Polly. Right. Because a lot of people tend to think that this song is in reference to Polly class and it's not. And we will cover that case later um, at some point because it, it is a very important case, but Polly class was not the inspiration behind the song by Nirvana. It's just the victims had no name. And so Kurt gave her one and um with his first victim being 12 when he was paroled did he have to register as a sex offender i have to assume i would hope so but again not a lot of information was readily available because they well what year was the first case 1960 i don't even know if they had a registers list back then didn't they 
Well, the first case was in 1960, but he was paroled in 1980. So, so getting out of jail, he would have had to have oh, registered. Oh, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, you're right. But you have to assume that he would have never been paroled in the first place. So, we yeah, he shouldn't have. Absolutely, but he did. But he registered as sex offender is us assuming, but I would not be surprised if he didn't, because he shouldn't have been paroled, and he was, and yeah. Um, and I would like to add just a little like footnote that um, at one point Cobain was once asked about an incident involving their song. Um, his response was, last year, a girl was raped by two wastes of sperm and eggs while they sang the lyrics to her song, Polly. I have a hard time carrying on knowing there are plankton like that in our audience. I love Nirvana. And from everything that I've read and, and know about them, Kurt was a big advocate for women yeah. and equal rights and um, consent. The LGBTQ plus community, even though back then that's not what it was called, but his whole thing was like, we're all outcasts and we're all weird and, and we can all just be ourselves together. And yeah there really is no place for hate here. No. So it really kind of messed him up knowing that someone took his song and, and used it as in such a violent yeah. and vile way. Not so much love is love, but very much a we're all equal kind of vibe. Very much. Yes. Like we're, we're all, we're all the same. We're all feeling the same things, no matter what we play. like, <laughs> Like, like teenage dirtbags, grunge, and hate field. Yeah, like he had a lot of issues. Yeah, and I, I would love to at some point cover his case too. There are a lot of feelings and a lot of opinions about his case, and I think well, that that would uh, be one. He's definitely on my celebrity list of cases. I would love yeah. to really get into that one. I'm, I'm looking forward to um, presenting that case at some point. But that is the end of the inspiration behind Polly from Nirvana. And the second case we will be going over is Jeremy Wade Dell. Ring any bells about what song this is from? I do, but that's just because I'm, I'm. Oh, you were privy to the case. Okay, well, <laughs> you don't count. I think I know what band you're going to, what song, who sings it. I know what band you're about to cover. But I don't know what song. Just because I told you? Mm -hmm. I might have told you. Oh, well, yeah. you both suck. Okay. The game is ruined <laughs> when, you, when you play like that. Okay. So, Jeremy Wade Dell was born February 10th, 1975 in Kentucky to Joseph and Wanda Dell. In 1978, the family moved to Dallas, Texas. Um, and then when Jeremy was five, his parents separated and divorced after nine years of marriage. Him and his nine-year-old sister um, went to live with their mom, and his father remarried within four months of the divorce in November of 1979. What is what what is happening with these like four-month turnarounds? I don't understand, dude. I don't know. But anyway, more importantly, what's happening in the 70s and 80s? Like, what were they taking for all these murderers to just be? Hey, I'm just saying, this isn't the first time we've seen a four-month. Oh, we're dating and then married, and but it also happened to someone we know. So I'm just saying it wasn't just in the 70s and 80s. 
I'm just talking about all these murderers. So in April of 83, his father then divorced his second wife. Um, and as far as Jeremy goes, um, his mother had said that he was incredibly artistically talented, that he showed real talent with drawing, and he was also a really great drummer. And in April of 1984, his mother remarried. There seems to be quite a bit of school bouncing around at this point. He had went to a variety of, of different like elementary schools and things um, up to this point. And then actually in the seventh grade, he had failed at W.H. Gaston Middle School. And then he started ninth grade at Brian Adams High School. And it's reported that he made friends while he was there. Others viewed him as a punk or like a goofball. There was a variety of different reports that came back on like who Jeremy was. But his friends reported that it was obvious that he was dealing with issues. He was skipping school, he was smoking cigarettes, and there seemed to just be an overall... Rebellion? Yeah, there, he was definitely um, a rebellious kid at this point, but in general, just like a heaviness to him. It, it was obvious. A cry out. Kind of. And even people that weren't necessarily very close to him picked up on his insubordination. And it, again, was, it just seemed obvious that there were issues. Um, in early March of 1990, Jeremy met Nancy at a Baptist winter retreat and they started dating. And she was a year older than him. So early March, he meets Nancy and they start dating. Later the same month, he withdrew from Brian Adams High School and switched to Richardson Junior High um, when he moved from Dallas to Richardson with his dad. And it is suspected that the sudden move was due to his anger and his mental health issues becoming too much for his mom and his older sister to handle. This is strictly speculation, though. We do not have any word one way or the other, like what caused the decision to move in with his dad. But at this point, it is noted that he was dealing with depression fairly right. severely and that coupled with his um like trouble in school and just overall stress from parents and teachers and school and i think maybe ab above average stressors in his life um and it was reported that nancy was jeremy's first love but their relationship did have its share of drama they dated for only about a month before nancy broke off the relationship she said of Jeremy, he blamed his problems on his parents or older sister. He was heavy into marijuana, acid, ecstasy, and alcohol. He thought his dad was very strict and he had trouble dealing with just life in general. And I think that probably his dad was strict on him because of his behavior. And mm -hmm. maybe that might have been the reason and the point behind the move to begin with was that he felt with his mom saying, this is becoming overwhelming. He's he's problematic. You right. try and, and help with the situation. His father probably felt like he had to come down on him a lot harder to correct a lot of the established mm -hmm. behaviors that, that he had already yeah. he had already like sunk into. Talk about a pharmacy, huh? He was on all sorts of drugs. Sounds like he was on a lot of psychedelics. Well, yeah. he was 
medicating, obviously, to escape. Yeah, it wasn't like heroin or <clears throat> oxy well, or, you know, it wasn't pills, but it was definitely something. Alter. Alter his state of mind. Yeah. Yeah. It is important to note that according to Nancy, Jeremy was talking a lot about suicide while they were together. It's important because after they break up, Jeremy attempts suicide for the first time. So mid-April of 1990, Nancy broke up with Jeremy. Um, she is quoted to saying that this was because of his possessive attitude and his problems with drugs and depression. Two days later, he attempted suicide with pills. He was rushed to the hospital and he survived. And after his recovery, he was checked into an inpatient program at Timberlawn. So according to reports, conditions at Timberlawn were less than desirable. Um, there were allegations of child abuse, sexual harassment, rape, and violations of life safety code standards, which led to the suicide of at least one patient while at the facility. Timberlawn closed their doors in early of 2018 when their insufficient safety measures caused their license to be revoked. Hmm. So that just kind of goes to show now 1990 versus 2018, it could be said that they were a great facility in the early nineties and it just went downhill from there. Yeah. But as far as like the records show, there were reports about the establishment that do not paint it in a comfy, cozy establishment. Right. So in June of 1990, custody of Jeremy changed to his father, Joseph. Um, during the month of July, and we're not sure of the exact date, uh, but he meets Michelle at Timberlawn and they started dating. Oh, that's never a good idea. Well, she <laughs> was a patient there. While he was, they were both in inpatient care. And then later in the same month, Jeremy got a pass to go home from the hospital and was an outpatient, but continued attending group and counseling meetings on property. So they still saw each other and things like that. Um, they still continued to date. Evidently, Jeremy was writing letters to both Michelle and Nancy at the same time. His letters what? to Michelle. Well, and there... The timeline does get a bit murky, and I'm not 100% sure in some of these instances, like what happened first and what happened second, but it did say that. So I think what happened was he dated Nancy, and as far as he was concerned, she was his first love. And I think that breakup was just yeah. incredibly difficult for him, and it sent him down like into a spiral. And then he was put into the inpatient care at um, Timberlawn where he met Michelle. And I think that like this point in his life, even though he is 14 at this point, he's, he's only 14. He is only 14. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And um, you want all them drugs? Whew. Well, he was, ex yeah, he started experimenting with drugs early, drugs and alcohol. Um, but I think that there was just an extreme disconnect and he was longing for somewhere to belong and right. somewhere he felt appreciated. And so with Michelle, he felt if I can enter into a relationship, I will feel what I've been 
needing missing. or wanting, missing. Yeah. yeah. But also he met her at Timberlawn, which means that they had a lot of things that were in common as far as like their mindset, I guess, sure. their lifestyle, traumas, like, traumas stuff like that. And with Nancy, she was like a straight A student year long right. kind of thing. She was incredibly responsible. I mean, they met at a church retreat. Right. And it became apparent to her fairly quickly that Jeremy's behavior and his outlook on life was not something that she was necessarily on board with. Right. And she did people. Right. But I think like her stability was very captivating to him and that mm -hmm. might have been another reason why he found it really difficult to let go of that relationship on top of just the general yearning for connection right so as far as i can tell yes he was he was writing nancy and michelle at the same time um and it may have just been his way of continuing to feel connected to nancy but not necessarily in a relationship like a romantic relationship kind of way, mm -hmm. but just uh -huh. in a, I need to stay friends with her. So I feel that connection with her. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I only say that because in the reports, they do say that his letters to Michelle, they attest to his love and his affection for her. And according to the police reports, his letters show that he really wanted to have a family with Michelle. Although the hmm. contents of the letters to Nancy are unknown, the general belief is that they were of the same caliber. But also, you're 14. Like, why are you... I mean, I get it, but you're only 14. I agree. He's 14. Like, I really... Hearing you talk about it, I really thought he was like, oh, you're like 18. You're 19 years old. Nope. Yeah, he's no. still young. He's, he's still... Yeah. He's a um, baby. He, he was born in January, so this is happening. Um, he's this is in July, so like fourteen and a half. Um, by the time this story ends, he'll be fifteen. But still, he's he. That's it's nothing. Oh yeah, the, yeah. That's a baby. Agreed. So in July, Jeremy and Nancy meet again at a summer Baptist retreat. And Jeremy climbed a cliff and threatened to jump off. He received counseling from church authorities, which I'm not 100% sure what church authorities are. But Probably um, counselors and... At a retreat, I guess. I like mean, camp? I suppose... Yeah. Church camp? Yeah. Because they, they met initially at the winter retreat. Right. And so this is in July at a summer retreat for the same church. And I mean, I have to assume, yeah, like there were counselors on, on site at the camp, maybe. Probably. Um, but they said that he received counseling from church authorities, but no follow-up measures were taken. And shortly after this incident, he drove to Nancy's house and threatened to shoot himself because of family and school problems. So that is his first suicide attempt and then first and second threats of suicide after but where's nancy's parents because i would be like little boy why are you at my house right now you're not allowed to see her <laughs> i don't know i i just know that um 
What are we in the nineties? Yeah. Yeah. No, parents didn't give a shit in the nineties. Well, yeah, which just makes me so disgusted to say because yeah, it makes me old. But on October sixteenth, nineteen ninety. Jeremy began attending Richardson High School. So he's moved from the middle school to the high school. And at some point in October, Jeremy and Michelle break up. Um, they had only dated for about three months at this point. Um, Michelle stated that she did not have a romantic relationship with Jeremy because she couldn't handle it. She said that Jeremy was upset that they had never made love. He seemed to feel as if they didn't have a real relationship. Michelle explained that he had made remarks about suicide in conversations and phone calls, which Michelle found strange. Uh, but I guess that it was a very common topic of discussion or just something that he would bring up regularly while they were dating. And from all reports, it sounds like the way that he kept in touch with Nancy after they broke up, he also continued to keep in touch with Michelle even after they broke up, which is why she, I think that's what she meant later. She's quoted to saying, we were just friends, um, nothing more. And I think she's referring to after the breakup or even maybe like during the breakup we dated, but it was, it was more like a friendly relationship because they were never physical. But also it's because they're 14. Agreed. Like, why are you? You're t you're 14 and you're upset because your girlfriend doesn't want to sleep with you. You're 14. I agree. You're 14. Yeah. Where's yeah. his parents? But also, 14 year boys are going through hormones. Yeah. And puberty. There's a lot yeah, going on there too. You don't push that on your girlfriend at like at 14. You still hold hands. And well, 14 year olds are dumb. Children, children in general. Where's his just... parents? Well. <laughs> Where his parents were? Do you know that his dad worked fairly late? Um, they had different like systems in place for him to get back and forth to school and counseling and things like that. But again, it's it's just his dad because he he divorced his second wife, and he his mom and sister and stepdad live in Dallas, and he now lives in Richardson. So it's not like they have that ability like to have hands on multiple hands on right no i get it but you need a lot more than therapy my dude i think he just needed consistent therapy and the reports do yeah. say that him and his dad um went to therapy together but a lot of these incidences like at church and things like that show that someone checked in on him but nobody ever checked up on him right so at school and things they, they would ask him or, hey, like, what's going on? Are you okay? But no one ever checked up on it, followed up. Yeah, I talked to his friends. and I think he genuinely needed what could have been basic level help. Yeah. Just consistent. There were reports speculated that he might have had, like, bipolar disorder. I don't know that it was commonly diagnosed in children that young in the 90s. Yeah. So I think they were just trying to figure out, like, what's going on with Jeremy. And they just weren't able to. Different time, man. It was a different time. Yeah. I think that comes back to it a lot, unfortunately. Um, so Jeremy was, he was put into in-school suspension. They called it ISS. Oh, I remember that. 
Oh, yeah? Are you familiar with it? <laughs> I remember hearing about it. Yeah, I went a few times. Onyx actually went. Yeah, I'm only uh, familiar with the reputation. But no, I've been there a few times. So can you kind of explain what it is? Like, I, I get the impression that in-school suspension is when you spend the day in suspension as opposed to your classes, correct? Yeah, when I went, of course, we're from a small town. It's a little different. When I went, they actually took you out of school and brought you to the police office. Like the <laughs> station. <laughs> yeah, they spend the day at the police station in this small room. Goes to jail. <laughs> <laughs> and see you still managed to get arrested. Like, that didn't scare the shit out of you. <laughs> no, because they just put you in this small room and it's like, here, here's your work. And you're with, like, two or three other people. And so all day you're doing your work. You're cheating on each other. You're talking. They're like, hey, here's your lunch. And you eat it at your desk in this small room. And then, okay, lunch is over, finish your work. You're in this back room with, like, three other people. You're talking, you're cheating. They tell you when to eat lunch. It wasn't a big, it was like a hangout. You hung out for the day. Oh, yeah, fun, a good old time. You just hung out at the police station for the day. Well, that that is not the impression that I get from how, like, their ISS was set up. There are a few um, reports and, like, the way that they referred to it, it, it gets a, I think maybe my brain is just incapable of wrapping itself around this concept and we'll get into it a little a little more when i get to that point so yeah i I mean iss is set up differently everywhere but yes the concept is that you are taken out of your normal classes and put into a different room where they give you all your work for the entire day and then you have certain times to eat lunch or take a break other than that you you're not allowed to talk you sit there you do your work right okay so he put into ISS for threats against his math teacher in early December. He was removed from her class because of the threats and we elaborate on that a little more later but just following like the timeline threats were made and then he was put into ISS in early December. So actually on the 11th of December so a little later it was alleged that Jeremy stole money from a cash box after a basketball game and his locker was searched and this incident was reported to the police. Has anyone thought about just giving this kid a good old-fashioned 1990s ass whooping? Because <laughs> is that occurred to anyone to just whip this kid's ass? I mean, you can't just beat him. You can't beat the bipolar out of a child, so that's true. You also cannot like beat the depression out of a child, <laughs> right? But these are cr- his decision making is questionable. Absolutely. And I think that his decisions are based on attention. He just, their cries for help. He just wants attention. Yeah. So again, his his locker was searched and the incident was reported to police. And according to the assistant principal, Mr. Joe Roseborough, the problem Jeremy faced at RHS revolved around truancy and the alleged threat against his algebra teacher. Jeremy's locker was searched three times before Christmas break. So for different reasons, they searched his locker. School started in October. So his locker was searched three times in those three months. And collectively between the three times, they found several bottles of whiteout, two editions of Colts That Kill, a deer's leg, and books what the hell? on childbirth and fatherhood. So, <laughs> I, 
I could not find a lot, but I did find enough that it sounds like this was true, but I don't understand like why a deer's leg and the books of childbirth and fatherhood weren't heavily cooperated. So I don't, I'm putting it out there that some sources said this, some did not. I don't know that those were found, but it did come up about several bottles of whiteout, the two editions of the cults that kill. Um, what is that? What? It's just two books. Like it's a, okay. it's a book, the name of the book being Cults That Kill. So I at one you. point they found it, they confiscated it. And then at a separate time when they went gotcha. to search his locker, a second edition was in his locker again. But also if you've ever like been hunting or been uh, even close to a deer, you know that their legs are not small. Like they have very long legs. I just, I don't, I don't know. I don't understand. Uh, a whole fucking deer leg? Could have been a small deer. I don't know. It could have know. been just like the Maybe it was just a bone. Part of it. You know what I mean? Like the. Yeah. Like a rabbit's foot, you know? Well, like maybe it was just a bone because. <laughs> even their foot, like you got to think about from heel to toe, that's still pretty long on a deer. Like just, just the hoof? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, maybe just the hoof. They intentionally did not go into a lot of detail. <laughs> Um, I just keep thinking like a fair chicken turkey leg. A turkey leg. Oh my god! Like, oh my god. god. I'm saying, like, like a deer, like just cutting it off and putting it. Like I'm just thinking like. Oh, I don't know. It just. I think they intentionally kind of just grazed over it because that was still relatively close to the whole satanic panic era. Oh yeah. Pulled with cults that kill. I think they were just kind of. Yeah, we found some stuff, but didn't want to really go into a lot of detail about it. Right. So I don't have a lot of information, but I thought that that That's was weird. Weird, yeah, very. Just, Jeremy, why do you have a deer's leg? What are you doing, bro? What are you? What are you doing, bro? So, uh, Mr. Rosenboro, or sorry, Ro Roseboro, notified Richardson police of the alleged threat and the contents of Jeremy's locker on December 12th. Apparently it's math teacher, Miss Neal. She wasn't threatened directly by Jeremy, but instead he had made comments to other students who reported the incident to the vice principal. So he said, he said, he said all the way back to the vice principal and then it became, okay, well, I have to uh, report this at this point because coupled with what was found in your locker, there are <laughs> reasons for concern. Um, so on the evening of the 12th, Jeremy was arrested for theft and questioned about the threat against Miss Neal, in which Jeremy attested that he made general comments and that it was twisted as rumors passed around the students. It's reported that what was reported to the assistant principal was something along the lines of, quote, wouldn't it be funny if her head got blown off? What? Quote. Yeah. <laughs> well, now. It's like, like a casual weird thing to throw in. And Jeremy's um, response to this was that it was nothing like that, that he had just made like a general comment and over like the rumor mill, it eventually got twisted into this thing that was far more sinister than how it started. So the police recommended counseling and his father told police that Jeremy, quote, 
has a lot of psychological treatments. He told them that Jeremy had gone to Timberlawn in early 1990 and that he was checking into other options for Jeremy. Joseph also asked for the theft to be reported to the juvenile system for help. So I think his dad was trying in, yeah. in the best way that he knew how. I mean, a single dad in the 90s. <laughs> I haven't three girls. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, so on the 14th of December, Jeremy is confined to ISS for the rest of the year for both <laughs> the threats and the locker contents, in addition to the fact that he was hospitalized at Timberlawn. So that's where my confusion, like, came into play. I don't mean to laugh, but that sucks. I mean, can you do that? Can you just pull a kid out of their classes and just condemn them to ISS for the rest of the year? That seems... Yeah. A little harsh. Well... Just counter- like it's, a, it's like expulsion, productive. but not. Okay, okay. I guess I, I can see. I just, it seemed very strange to me that they wouldn't just expel him. I don't know. Make him go to like maybe a better fitting school. It's just kind of like, okay, well, what is the point? You're not learning anything if all you're doing is collecting your, your work and having them sit down and do it. Like, questions cannot be asked, answers cannot be received. There, the oh, yeah, social exposure is diminished drastically. It just seems weird. Like, that seems like a maybe not the right way to go. I go nuts. So, on the morning of January 6th, 1991, Michelle called Jeremy, which again leads me to believe that they still kept in contact and they kept in touch with one another even after they broke up. Yeah. He still considered both Michelle and Nancy close friends of his. She recalls that he seemed depressed, her usual, and that he boasted that he was on acid and he had done more drugs than he had ever done before. Michelle told Jeremy that she thought she was pregnant, but Jeremy wasn't the father. He told her that he would die for her, and Michelle said that that sounded strange, so she called his mother, Wanda. She said that she felt like Wanda did not show concern at the time. This is her allegation. Like, this this was her report of the events. I have no way um, of cooperating one way or another how that conversation went or what happened. But it is reported on multiple sources that they did talk to one another on the morning of the 6th and that she had told him that she thought she was pregnant. Not like, I am, it's just, I think. But she did say that if that were the case, he weren't the father. And he he told her that he would die for her. The police confirmed that Michelle was not pregnant at the time. And on January 7th at 11 a.m., Jeremy wrote notes to his friend Lisa who was also confined to ISS at the time. They usually talked about their lives and just got to know one another in general. And they wrote about their school lives and private lives and just general problems. His note that day was signed off with, quote, later days, instead of his typical, quote, right back. This caught Lisa's attention because she thought it was unusual. And she later stated, 
in a newspaper interview that she never expected what would happen the next day. So at 3.30, Jeremy left school and caught a bus to his counseling appointment at the Aerobic Center with Dr. Bob H. And then at 6, the counseling session ended and Jeremy walked to his father's girlfriend's house, which was nearby. So that was the schedule that they kind of had set up. Right. Was that he would take the bus from school to his counseling. And then when counseling was done, he would just walk to his dad's girlfriend's house, which was close to the treatment center. And then he would wait there until his dad would pick him up later. But while he was at the girlfriend's house, she would be working late and his dad would be working late. So while he was there waiting, he was unattended. He would, he would be there by himself. And typically he would just go and like raid the snack drawer and um, just like watch, watch TV, TV and stuff and wait for his dad to come pick him up. But in that time, there was no supervision. So at 6.30, Jeremy called Nancy to tell her that it was the last time they would talk because he was leaving for Tokyo the next day with his dad. He said he would be mailing her an expensive ring the next day. And they talked for about an hour. And then at 7.20, his dad, Joseph, picked Jeremy up from um, his girlfriend's house. And Joseph recalled that Jeremy seemed happy. He was upbeat and just normal. Those are like... Typical signs of suicide. Very much so. Like, we, just out of, out of character. Yeah. Like, being in a depression for months, and then all of a sudden they're just, like, feeling like they just come out of it. Yeah, just, like, elated. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and we recognize those signs, but maybe back then it was not as no talked about. No. It wasn't as no. well known. Yeah. These signs may have not even been reported. A lot of the time mm -hmm. as things to like look out for. I think mental health was a, lot a completely of people didn't different really know concern. how to recognize it. Exactly. Yeah, mental health wasn't an issue back then. It wasn't. Um, well, it's not so much it wasn't an issue. It just wasn't. Well, no, I'm saying like to light the way like, it is now. Today we talk a lot about it. It's important to us. It's that's an issue that's important to us nowadays. Back then. We didn't even talk about it. I it think wasn't. stigma back then, the issue was that there was a stigma. That, yep. oh, I'm feeling what we know now as depressed or anxious or manic. And back mm -hmm. then it was like, we'll just go outside. Right. Just ignore it. Force yourself, push through it, and you'll come out the other side yeah. and feel better about it. You're just in a funk. You're in a mood. And what... Yeah, they didn't understand was that it wasn't like just a funk. It was it was brain a functionality. Brain yeah. yeah. And so it wasn't seen as a serious thing that it is today. It was just misunderstood. It's just so sad. Exactly. <laughs> Considering, I mean, at this point, he's 15, 15. Yeah. So uh, his dad picks him up and they go home and they watch a movie on TV. And that was, that was their night. His dad seemed really like, okay, yeah. let's spend time together. This, this was a good night. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. So on the morning of January 8th, 1991, 15 year old Jeremy called Nancy. They talked for about 20 minutes. She recalled him being in good spirits and they actually didn't talk about suicide. He never brought it up, which ironically was unusual. Exactly. 
And she said that he was, quote, so at peace, so much more than I had ever seen him. Wow. Yeah. And I did misspeak earlier. I said that his birthday was in January. And so um, speaking about him earlier in those summer months that he was only 14, his birthday's in February. So he was 15 at that point, And he is still 15. He's on the verge of turning 16. It's coming February. So that was that was my mistake. Even then, so young. After the phone call with Nancy, he arrived at school at about 8.20. He paged his dad to let him know he was there. And he went, he dropped off his backpack at ISS. Um, he went to the Eagle's Nest cafeteria where he gave a fellow student the ring that he had promised Nancy and a letter and asked the, the student to mail it for him after school because he was, quote, not going to be around after school. It was reported that Jeremy did not seem depressed at all, but happy. He hugged at least two female students and was seen smiling and in a good mood for the, for the first time. Um, again, he had started school in October, and this was a new school for him, and here we are in January. So people don't really know him very well. So and to they, start that late in the school year? Well, that, I, I think it was normal for them. Like most places start, I know we start in August, but most places start like September. Mm -hmm. So depending on like how their school year falls, early October might be normal. Right. Yeah. I know for us, if someone were to join now, they'd only have missed two months. Exactly. So that's so kind of, much. I don't I mean, know I guess so. that he necessarily enrolled late, just that this was a new school for him because he was going from the middle school in okay, Richardson to this is, this is like the high school. Gotcha. So I don't know that it was a late enrollment. I just right. know that he had only went to this school. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it wasn't until like sometime after 935 that Jeremy entered his English 2 class where he, he was handed a hall pass by Miss Barnett and told to go to the school office and receive a new ISS admittance or like a late excuse. I got different reports based on different like different variations sources. So some sources said to go get like a late pass or or some kind of pass. Some sources said it was a new ISS admittance, which again is my confusion. If you're in ISS, why do you have an English teacher? Isn't it just like one teacher that watches the class for the well, day? It sounds like his ISS class would be in the building. Right. Which in that case, depending on the day, if this was a Monday and to enter ISS, you have to have paperwork that says you're supposed to be there. Otherwise, kids will try to skip and go there, right? They'll try to skip the classes and just... Oh, I've got a test in math, so I would just rather go hang out with the ISS kids? Right. So you have to have paperwork saying, hey, I'm supposed to be here. And because in ISS, you just hang out. You don't do much. So the whole like, again, I am having trouble kind of wrapping my brain around how it works. But uh, I've never <laughs> been. And I, I mean, it would make sense if they were asking him to get a new ISS administration paperwork if it was early in the week, which basically means go to the office, 
get this printed out saying you're supposed to be because he was late maybe if he was late or i mean if they needed it every week every week you need new paperwork maybe Hmm. but so even if you're there all year long you still have to get that paperwork all year long showing that you're supposed to be there that's where you were well he was there the day before maybe it's just because it's also a different state it it, their iss works differently than ours maybe i don't know I'm just going to say it was some kind of like late, like tardy excuse. Go to the office and, and get yeah, your late pass or like excuse. your tardy right. kind of thing. Probably what it was. Some kind of reprimand for being late. Yeah. If he dropped the stuff off in the ISS classroom, then why was he late? Which I don't know. There is like that hour and a half that morning that's just missing. Because his dad got a call saying that he hadn't shown up for that first class, that he wasn't there yet. And it wasn't until after second period had started that he reported to that English classroom and his teacher said, go get your tardy or whatever it was. Uh, your excuse note. Yeah, well, yeah, go to the office and come back. So there's like from the time that he arrived at 820 that morning and he went into the cafeteria and was talking to the fellow students and gave them the letter, gave them the ring. It wasn't until 935 that he actually showed up in class. So I don't know what he was doing. I don't know. But his teacher, Miss um, Burnett, told him to go to the office. He left and went to his locker instead. He grabbed a 357 Magnum revolver. Holy crap. Before returning back to class, uh, when he got back to his class, he told his teacher, I got what I really went for. As he stood at the front of the class, he took out the revolver and put the barrel in his mouth. (sighs) Before anyone could react, Jeremy pulled the trigger and he killed himself in front of his teacher and 30 other students. Wow. The traumatized students, I know, you should see Onyx's face. She can't talk right now. The traumatized students started screaming and running from the room. The other classrooms heard the commotion, but they weren't sure what was going on until the other students started flooding into the hallway. Classes were actually not canceled. What? Yeah. um, Classes continued. Students were excused if needed. Uh, I would say so. But the school counselors encouraged the students to stay and discuss their feelings with the team of about 30 counselors who showed up on property to help with everyone affected by the events of the day. So they actually called in about 30 additional counselors. Okay, but I don't think that's something that you can process in a day. Well, and I think that it was a good source to provide for the students who felt they needed it or wanted it or they just needed to talk about it. Right. And those who couldn't deal with it right away, they were allowed to go home. So I know it sounds kind of harsh that classes were not canceled, but I think nobody was expected to actually perform classwork. I think the idea was we're not closing the doors. We're keeping our resources open to everyone who needed it. Right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So it was discovered that he had taken the gun and the ring from his dad's girlfriend's house the night before. So in that time that he was at the girlfriend's house unattended, he had stolen one of her rings and he had taken the gun from her house. And that's, that's what he took to school the next day. 
Michelle said that she had felt as if Jeremy's death was her fault because he wanted a commitment from her and possibly to get married later, but she could not give that kind of commitment. She considered him her friend. Nothing less, nothing more. And I think that's what I was referring to earlier in the sense that her quote saying that we were just friends, we weren't anything more, I think she was referring to after the fact. Yeah. Like after the breakup. They stayed friends, but he continued to want more the same way that he did with Nancy. Jeremy wrote a few different suicide letters as well as tapes to his friends. The one to Nancy read, quote, Sorry, Nancy. By the time you get this letter, I will have blown my head off, a.k.a. suicide, better known as last way out. Damn. Newsflash, not your fault. It's Michelle's, along with 137.5 other problems. I was just writing to see if you wanted to go to my funeral. Call my house and ask for my dad. And then he lists a number. At least you didn't have to hear the boom. Love, Jeremy Wade Dell. What the hell's wrong with this kid? Like, what a cold-hearted letter. Like, that's... I think he was just in a very dark place. He was feeling very rejected. Listen, I've been there, but even being in that area or in that situation where you just feel like I just, you want to crawl out of your skin and just leave this earth. I still don't feel like you're going to write a letter so cold. And that may have just been the way he talked. Maybe. It may have been his mannerisms and that might have just been how he buried himself. Like, stop, girl. Come cry at my grave. Hit up my daddy. Peace out. Like, I, um. So in in his letter to Nancy, he does say it's it's not your fault. It's Michelle's. But it is reported that in the note to Michelle, he tells her it isn't her fault either. I was unable to find the the letter to Michelle, so I don't know its contents, and I I can't say one way or another what was in it. But reports, there were a few reports that said that in his letter to her, he told her that it wasn't her fault. He also sent a letter to his friend Chris, who uh, lived in Austin, and it was addressed to the whole family. He thanked them for letting him stay there. He tells Chris's parents to keep up the good work. He tells Chris's sister that she's very pretty, and he tells Chris that Chris meant the most to him and that he's sorry for letting them down and to call his dad for funeral info. Um, and again, as reported in the local newspaper, Jeremy's tragic decision was reported, which was then read by Pearl Jam's vocalist, Eddie Vedder, who was inspired to write the song, Jeremy. Eddie stated that he, quote, felt the need to take that small article and make something of it, to give that action, to give it reaction, to give it more importance. Pearl Jam faced a lot of pushback from um, suicide advocacy groups, worried parents, and even Jeremy's father himself when the band decided to make a music video for their song. When all was said and done, they ended up winning four MTV Video Music Awards. So, I obviously am very familiar with the song. Right. That was another one that I was familiar with 
well before I started doing the research on it. I never watched the music video just because yeah. the way that we grew up, we didn't have access out in the middle of nowhere to MTV or YouTube or really anything. So I actually watched it for the first time while doing research. And I can see why people were upset, honestly, because in the video, they depict Jeremy, a teenage boy, in class. And they don't show it on screen, but they do show him going into the class and with a gun. And they imply him shooting himself. And it's honestly watching it, knowing after doing all of the research that I've done, I was like, holy shit, this is intense. Well, you also, I can also see why his dad would be pissed. You're trying, like I get for you, this may be getting my son's uh, mental health or bringing awareness to it. But as a parent, I could see why his, Jeremy's dad would be mad. You're making a profit off of my son's tragic traumatic event. Yeah. yeah. But not even that, like it was reported. A lot of people said that, that the way that Jeremy was depicted in the song was inaccurate. That, well, not so much Jeremy's depiction, but the situation. Because Pearl Jam, or maybe just Eddie Vedder, I'm not sure. In the song, they, they make a point to say, like, to, to say that his family just doesn't care about him. They don't give a shit that he was alone. And right. he felt alone. And I'm not saying that he didn't. I have to assume that a big part of his decision making was because he felt alone. Right. He felt very isolated. But that doesn't mean he was alone because in a lot of situations you feel so alone. You don't know who to turn to. You don't know who to talk to. And everybody you think, oh, maybe I could talk to them. And then you go, no, never mind. I I don't want to burden them with that. So it doesn't specifically mean that maybe he was alone, but definitely probably felt that way. And it, that was the picture they were trying to paint, the message that they were trying to convey is from Jeremy's point of view, yeah. mommy doesn't care kind of thing. It upset a lot of people because it made it sound like Jeremy was in this situation in which he had no one to turn to when that wasn't the case. And when the video came out and it's depicting are implying his actual last moments and like what happened in that classroom in the music video. It was incredibly triggering and traumatic for a lot of people. So there was a lot of pushback and it was controversial to be honest. But I think that Eddie Vedder and Pearl Dram as a whole was attempting to shine light on the problem. Right. Not Jeremy specifically but using it as a way to talk about it, a pedestal to stand on. Yeah. And they, I, I think on some notes they did it justice right. and others, they could have been more tactful. I think that's what a lot of people don't understand is that like, if you don't talk about it, there is not a way for a solution to be made. Absolutely. And so, I mean, with such a traumatic event, a lot of people, there are going to be split controversial opinions about it but in my opinion personally i do think that the more you talk about it the more it comes to light the more people focus on it and we get closer to a solution on how to handle it it doesn't become safe it you lessen the taboo as a a talking point oh we can't talk about that well there's a lot of benefits to talking about it one yes 
you you eliminate the untrusting I can't talk about that you bring to light and make people feel comfortable talking about it and they trust others to talk about it but also look how far we've come like in the 90s you didn't even talk you didn't admit to having depression even if you knew you didn't admit to it and now we're at a place where there are commercials for it we're talking about it we're here to solve this problem it's not the stigma exactly that it used to be exactly so i think that it served its purpose i think there were a lot of good things that came from it as well as i think that if if they followed all of the rules it wouldn't have been as dramatic and it was the the drama behind it that made it such a sensation if they didn't make it a little controversial it might have been overlooked so putting jeremy's suicide in their music video was just enough taboo wrong to make it sensational yeah they could have definitely wrote a song without naming any names about the situation and brought light to mental health without saying jeremy's name i don't think that's what they did saying his name and singing about this specific event was what was so taboo and i think that was their purpose i think it was just really hard yeah i think that's what they were meaning to do though it's like yes i can make this song about suicide and mental health and depression and being alone or I could use this kid and his specific situation and sing about this, and it brings more... Exactly. They made it personal for somebody. When you actually went into real, it's a lot more personal. But So that's my case. I wanted to cover a couple of true crime or just... I mean, Jeremy's case isn't true, tra- true crime. But it was it's, just a tragic they were both tragedies yes tragedies exactly inspired perfect choice of words there so i wanted to take two tragic events that inspired and kind of got the word out about said events and so i landed on polly from nirvana and jeremy from pearl jam and i think i've got a case in the next couple weeks when it's my turn i'm really hoping that i so as onyx and anna know because I'm so undecisive, I have a wheel that I spin. Yeah, she has a random wheel. I have a random wheel, and so unfortunately it did not land on Kurt Cobain this week, but I don't think I'm going to be spinning it next week because of this case. I think I'm just going to go ahead and... Segue into it? Yep. Okay. Yeah. So, heads up, guys. Kurt Cobain's coming your way. Kurt Cobain is coming. I love that man. Me too. And all of his, like, tragic brain... All right, so that's all for us today. Um, we just want to thank you all for listening. We encourage all of you to reach out and tell us what you think. You can reach us on Twitter at CasketCasePod or Instagram at CasketCase.podcast or even write to us at podcast.CasketCase at Gmail. Uh, we cannot wait to hear what you have to say and even get your recommendations on cases you find fascinating. We love all of you weirdos, so please be safe out there. And we'll see you in the grave. Bye.